0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan. Ah, the holidays. A season of tradition and for many, romance and warm and fuzzy feelings. Cozying up with a loved one by the fire, sharing a cup of eggnog, watching a rom-com with your number one, and giving gifts that surprise and delight. No wonder it's also the most popular time of year to pop the question. That's right, marriage proposals make December memorable in the lives of many couples. One thing couples are probably not thinking about, the possibility of divorce. Okay. Sorry for the buzzkill, but my guest says that even if your union feels destined to last forever, you should still consider a prenuptial agreement, or as it's commonly known, a prenup. Randy Kessler is founder of KS Family Law. He's a professor at Emory Law School and author of Divorce, Protect Yourself, and joining me in the studio to talk about the thing that most people don't even want to think about. Randy, thanks so much for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. So I think everybody... Feels like they know what a prenup agreement is, but legally, what is the basic concept?
1: It's basically negotiating a divorce before you're married. It's cutting the lawyers out of money. Here's what we're going to do with our money if we get divorced so we don't have to pay lawyers to fight about it. You know what they say? They say half of all Americans' first encounter with the law is through a divorce or family law because everyone knows somebody or has a kid or child support or, you know.
0: Okay, so that sounds a little Mm -hmm. (laughs) wet-blankety. Do you think, you know, at one time, I guess, prenups used to be illegal because it was thought that they would encourage divorce. Now we hear about them all the time. So what's behind that evolution? So
1: the evolution is that years ago, the government thought we don't want people to get divorced. It's not a good thing. So if we make it easy to get divorced by pre-deciding the issues, people will think, I can just get a divorce and put in place the prenup. People were getting divorced anyway. They were paying lawyers lots of money, using a lot of court time, taxpayer time, judge time. So the legislatures across the country said, you know what? If people are adults and they want to decide how to divide their property, let them.
0: I know, but this is bread and butter for lawyers like you. I mean, isn't, isn't a protracted divorce better for your business and billable hours?
1: You know, I think that's a misconception. Sure, we can make a lot of money on one case. But if I can save somebody that trouble, I imagine they're going to send their friends to me and their relatives, and they're going to say, this guy was not in it to make all the money on one case. Because when one case ends, what are we going to do? We need another client.
0: So it is fair to say, I think, that in popular culture and society at large, there's a common assumption that people who had prenups are rich. I mean, they're protecting their money. Are, are prenups only for rich people?
1: Uh, rich people probably are, are, should have prenups more than other people, but... If you have something valuable that's really important to you, and it doesn't have to be monetarily valuable, this is the house that my grandpa built, and it's not worth much, but I want to make sure that I keep it in my family, that's worth it. Or, of course, the topic of the day, pets. Maybe you don't have something that's worth millions of dollars, but to you, you know, your dog, your goldfish, whatever it may be, you really can't do much within court, so a prenup is about the only way to to pre-decide who gets it. I
0: wonder if anyone has actually had a goldfish prenup.
1: You know what? I would not be surprised. I've seen some crazy stuff.
0: Well, like what?
1: So we see people that ask all sorts of questions. Can I have a penalty provision if he cheats? Can I say that if she weighs more than X number of pounds, I don't have to give her any money? And I don't think those would be enforced, but I'll tell you what, it might scare somebody into staying in shape.
0: Let's get to the pet thing, because I think that's really interesting. This is a relatively recent phenomenon, the pet nup, designating what happens to a pet if a couple splits. How common is it?
1: Well, it's getting more and more common, and the reason is people are realizing that if you go all the way through to a divorce, the judge really has no power to do anything except give it to one side or the other. And so, except in California, which now, you know, they usually lead the way in new, fangled kind of laws, and they have one that says the judge can decide visitation issues for pets, but if you're not in California and you go out and you both love this dog, you better decide what you're going to do with it by yourselves, either before the divorce or even before the marriage.
0: So I've actually I've only seen data for the UK. This is a new survey from mm-hmm. a pet insurance company, so we'll take that with a grain of salt, where one in 20 couples have a dispute over, over a dog. About 30,000 divorce cases in the past year involved one of those disputes. So apparently this is custody battles over dogs. Have you ever negotiated a pet nup?
1: We absolutely have. And now the whole prenup may not be just about the dog, but that could be the most important issue and, and we've seen it drive people to the brink and you know you try to get creative, you try to say, Well, he'll buy her another dog and they look at you like you're crazy because you can't just clone a dog although You know, one day that may be the solution.
0: I know you said that states have had permission to make decisions about prenups. So that's probably year by year. But in general, when did the prenup start having legal status in the U.S.?
1: So about 30 or 40 years ago, when people's divorce became more and more prominent, people were realizing I should have the right to decide how I'm going to get divorced and and not pay Laura's a lot of money. And what's more interesting to me is in the last 10 years or so, states are allowing postnuptial agreements.
0: What does that mean?
1: Okay, so you've been married 10 years and you're not sure if the marriage is going to last, but you're about to make a lot of money and you decide, look, I'll stay with you. But if we get divorced, I don't want you to participate in this new income I'm going to have. Or my dad gave me this beach house, but he wants to make sure that I lock it in so that it's for our family. And if we get divorced, he insists that I sign a postnuptial agreement. So those are the kind of issues. Or Tiger Woods, if she would have stayed with him, she probably would have said, I'll stay with you. But I want to make sure if we get divorced in 10 years... And you spend all your money, you've saved half of it for me.
0: Well so that's that but that seems even more sort of cold blooded if I can say that. But you're saying that this is a realistic way of looking at
1: relationships. It's interesting. You say wet blanket and you say that it's cold blooded and hard facts, but the truth of the matter is it lets love thrive. If if you and I are having a disagreement and we're not sure our marriage is gonna last, let's decide the money. Let's put that off to the side, agree what's gonna happen if we get divorced, and then I'm not worried that you're staying with me for the money and you're not worried about your security. We can just go to therapy. We can figure out our lives. And if it doesn't work, the money's already decided. It takes that off the table and gets it out of the way so we can focus on whether we want to be together.
0: I guess you could also make the case that if you can negotiate something like this, it's a good sign for any kind of union that you can negotiate something that's really difficult.
1: Yeah. Or to be a cynic or to look at the other side, if you negotiate a prenup, it really brings out who somebody is. And if you see, holy cow, this person is never going to be generous with me, and I just don't want to be with them. And, we, and we've had that happen where somebody has said, I'm never going to give her more than X. I said, what if you're married for 10 years? No. What if you're married 20? What if you have grandkids together? You've been married that long. She will never get more than 100, whatever it was, $1,000. And they didn't get married.
0: I'm speaking with Randy Kessler, family law attorney and founder of KS Family Law here in Atlanta. He's also a professor at Emory Law School and author of Divorce, Protect Yourself. And we're talking about exactly that, protecting your cherished items now, including pets. Let me go back to the pet thing, because I'm wondering, like, if pets are treated legally, are they considered property like a house or a car or more like a child?
1: Well, that's exactly why they're coming up in prenups, because in court, they're like a piece of furniture. All the judge can do is give the couch to one side or the other. All the judge can do is give the dog to one side or the other. But you can avoid all that by signing a prenup or a postnup or a petnup.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. So if it came to it, you you said judges make decisions about this. So would they have to enforce a prenup You know, between somebody who says, I should have a right to visit my dog?
1: Boy, that, that's interesting. And it hasn't been tried yet. And we haven't seen that case yet because prenups can't, can't deal with children issues. You can't say that mom will have custody because when the divorce happens, mom may end up being a drug addict at the time. So the courts always have the right to monitor custody issues. It's a curious question. When we get to the Supreme Court on that issue, one day, is the Supreme Court going to say, I don't care what you two agreed. What you agreed to is not best for that dog. I'm going to change the prenup. And that might just be the next big case in family law.
0: I read one story of a divorce where one person was using the pet as emotional leverage, I think, to get a better settlement. Little did he know that the judge was a dog lover. So how did that one turn out?
1: Oh, terrible. You know, you got to got to know your judge. They say good lawyers know the law and great lawyers know the judge. Well, you got to know your judge's nuances. And um, I've had cases where the judge actually was the kind of judge that kept two little dogs in her chambers all day long. And the other side sort of made little of how much the wife was fighting about these stupid little dogs. That didn't sit well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how about prenups that have backfired or if one person may have thought that they were being protected, but it ended up benefiting the other party more
1: happens all the time. You know, some people just feel like I'm going to tell my family and my friends that I got a prenup and I'm not stupid. I was smart enough to get a prenup. They turn around, they give away so much in the prenup. They come out worse than they might've come out in the divorce. They might say, fine, I'm going to get a prenup. I'm going to give her 75% of my assets, but at least I can tell my friends I've got a prenup. You know, it Sometimes you're better off not having a prenup, and sometimes the fight about the prenup is not worth the fight.
0: Okay, but you're sitting with couples who are in the flush of engagement, looking forward to the rest of their life, and it can come off as a little callous to think about you know, how it's all going to end. But who generally wins, quote-unquote, when it comes to prenups? The people who have more money when it's signed?
1: That's a very good question, and to me, and I think that you have to really go through a lot of these to figure out who wins. And And the really unique answer, and I think it's the right answer, is The person who is more willing to walk away and it's really hard to say that but I've seen people that want to get married everyone's in love and they want to get married but there's always someone who seems to want it a little bit more and when you get that sense of she's really willing to walk away and I don't care if you're the richest athlete in the world the most popular celebrity in the world and I've represented a bunch of them that have said you know what I'm afraid I'm gonna lose him or her let's drop the whole discussion Mm -hmm. and so it's whoever really can stand up and say I would rather not be married than sign that document that she wants me to sign that's the person who wins.
0: Have you ever seen in the process of putting together a prenap that couples begin to fight over the dog or the house?
1: Absolutely. You know, it sort of brings out what's important to people. And, you know, but like you said earlier, if you can get through that conversation, if you can figure that stuff out, there's not much you can, uh, that can throw you for a loop. It's weird. When you start thinking about family law stuff, it's always backwards from what the first impression is, you know.
0: I, that's really interesting that, you know, you were sort of challenging me on the whole wet blanket thing. Um, but But
1: it is, it's a downer to just bring it up. But if you had a second, third, fourth marriage and you've been through a bad, ugly, expensive divorce, you probably have a little more moral authority to say this time around, I just want to be safe. The part we didn't talk about is you have to have an excuse. I mean, that's something to help them with. Say that your brother is the one who went through an ugly divorce and you don't want to be like him, if that's the truth, or your parents... Or insisting on going to blame somebody else. Let let me be the fall guy.
0: Actually, that, that was interesting. You said if someone's lawyer or agent says that you should get a prenup, that's your kind of excuse.
1: Yep. yep. So, or, and I'm, I'm the fall guy a lot. Look, one of the reasons people hate lawyers, you know, don't tell him that I want to fight for the dog, but I want to fight for the dog. I said blame the lawyer because I'm not going to know him afterwards. You're going to always have a family. You're going to always have a kid in common. Blame me for something he doesn't like.
0: So of all those people who are like, oh, I hate my ex, they can hate you more.
1: Ah, and they do. But you know what? <laughs> it's okay. I'll, I'll swallow that pill because I know it helps them.
0: What do you tell people who say, I don't want a prenup. I, we love each other, so they don't need one.
1: I say, go for it. You know, lo- better to love and lost than never to have loved at all. So try it. And those kind of people are probably going to be the ones that aren't going to fight as hard anyway because what I always hear in divorce is, it's not about the money. It's about happiness. Or as one of my clients once said, It's just about being less miserable. So when you want to get out, you want to get out. And um, you're seeing a future. And and really the money is often secondary uh, to starting your life over.
0: So prenups give you more faith in coupledom and the hope of unions lasting or less?
1: Well, I'll be candid. I'll reveal something. I don't have a prenup. (laughs) And I'm happily married. I was going to ask. (laughs) I I do not have one. And um, our marriage is good. But uh, I don't know. I think everybody's different. You know, some people just need to have that security, um, and I think sometimes prenups are good. When I represent, let's be stereotypical, the rich guy who's marrying the young woman who doesn't have any money, and he wants her to feel good. He doesn't want the prenup to protect himself. He wants her to know that if you marry me, and it doesn't work out, you are going to have at least X, Y, and Z to make her feel better. So there are all sorts of benefits sometimes that you don't think about until you start getting into the process.
0: If she doesn't gain weight.
1: <laughs> uh, if he's one of those, and he's probably not the kind that wants to give her a lot anyway.
0: Randy Kessler, thank you so much. Thanks for having
2: me.
0: That's Randy Kessler explaining that a prenup doesn't have to spell divorce, but it is there if you do choose to split. He is founder at KS Family Law and a professor at Emory Law School and author of Divorce, Protect Yourself. Let us know, would you consider getting a prenup? Do you think it's unromantic or just smart? Join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. Earlier, you heard I'll Be Home for Christmas by Bing Crosby. And as we head into the break, we're listening to Kanye West's Gold Digger. More of On Second Thought coming up after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us.
2: If you ain't no punk, holler, we want prenup. We want prenup, yeah. It's something that you need to have, when she leave your-
0: we're back with On Second Thought from GPB Virginia Prescott. The Winter Sisters is a new historical fiction novel set in Lawrenceville, Georgia, circa 1822. A self-righteous doctor arrives in the tiny backwater town eager to treat what he believes could be an impending rabies epidemic. And he is shocked to learn that citizens favor folk remedies over what he considers tried and true scientific methods namely bloodletting, amputations, and copious amounts of ether. It is a cinematic tale weaving deeply researched historical facts on the medicine and language of its time, along with richly imagined fantasies of Southern folklore come to life. To find these stories, Tim Westover went straight to the source, to the people and town of Lawrenceville, Georgia. He didn't have to go far. It's where he calls home. Tim, welcome.
3: Thank you very much.
0: The Winter Sisters is set in 1822. Now, this is an interesting time, pretty much smack in the middle of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. You've got this transitional period, a time that really doesn't get a lot of attention in, in history, uh, American history anyway. Why did you choose that time and place?
3: Precisely because it didn't get that much interest. So there's so much about the Revolutionary War, even the War of 1812, and then the Civil War. And I specifically shy away from those two things. I just don't feel like I could do them very well. So I wanted to dive into something that wasn't as well explored, maybe had a little bit more Cherokee history or Cherokee mm-hmm. background. This was
0: before the Trail of Tears. It was.
3: It was before the, the Georgia Gold Rush as well. And actually a lot of Cherokee history happened in Lawrenceville, Georgia as well. There were a couple of trials that were part of the Trail of Tears that took place in the courthouse that I can see from my office window.
0: Wow. So, as an historical fiction writer, this is a rich place. But part of your process is researching the small folk stories from the places you set your novel. So, how do you find these stories?
3: Oh, going into a lot of books that look very boring on the surface, but then are very interesting when you get inside them. So, even land records or tax records to find crazy names for people. I love anything that starts with proceedings of the Blank County Historical Society, mm-hmm. because those are always going to be collections of my grandmother always did this, and my mom always swore by this. I love those little tiny stories.
0: So The Winter Sisters is your second book. Mm-hmm. Both do lean heavily on the magical and the fantastical. How, how do you balance that, the fantastic, the fantasy, with the facts? Because a lot of this is based on the historical fact.
3: Right. Well, A folktale to me is an interesting mix of fact and fantasy. So a folktale is something that is not true but might have been believed as it were true or that people took as a foundational myth or an idea for how they would behave in life or organize society. So it itself is always going to be a blend of fact and fantasy. And... What I play with in the book is this doubt or debate between what's fact and what's fantasy. And your main character, the educated doctor, he's so certain that what he believes is what's correct. You as the reader, 170 years later, know that that is not at all the correct answer. But that was absolutely the established 100% truth at the time.
0: Right. And then on the other side, we have these sisters, the herbal, downright mysterious medicine that was practiced by this trio of sisters. Again, a trio of sisters, which is significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the distinction between how effective they are, respectively, is not really clear. You know, based on your research, what can you tell us about this transition from traditional folk medicines to more, and I'm putting scientific, uh, in quotes, based, based medicine? Right.
3: Well, we have one sister who's primarily concerned with herbal cures and herbal folklore. And there are a lot of herbs that have turned into modern medicines. Preparation H is just witch hazel. Aspirin is willow bark. And quinine, to treat malaria, comes from the cinchona tree. So there's not as big a divide in those herbal medicines from modern medicines, as some people might think. Now, our our other sisters have more of a a mystical approach to it. And I think that speaks to the modern growing focus or growing interest in how the mind or the body itself heals the body. Mm -hmm. There's the placebo effect, which absolutely is real, absolutely real. And so just believing that you are getting better will make you better.
0: Well, you work in healthcare as your day job, I understand. I
3: do. I'm a computer programmer for software that's used in healthcare laboratories.
0: So very scientific based, very, very fact yes. based. So I'm curious about what your colleagues think about this research into folk medicine. Have you talked with them about that? Well,
3: I had a package come to the office the other day when I was out, and I said, if anybody picks up that package, you might want to wear gloves. And they said, why? And I said, well, it's filled with 19th century medical chemicals, <laughs> some of which may be poison. And it turned out to be like tincture of rhubarb and ammonia and things that weren't too bad.
0: Well, the, you, you've brought up something else that is in here, the whole patent medicine, the cure for everything, you know, just drink this oil. This was a huge part of both the economy and, and travel in the, in the 19th century, peddled by snake oil salesmen prevailing at the time.
3: Right, and snake oil salesmen, because a lot of it, might have actually had oil derived from snakes in it. That mm-hmm. was something that they they advertised as, as a cure. It's, in some ways, it reminds me of what some people will say about certain vitamins and supplements and herbs and essential oils. It harkens back to that era for me where I think people are looking for some kind of alternative to the medical practice of the day. And in the 19th century, it was heroic medicine. Medicine is hard, medicine is painful, medicine is difficult. And also medicine didn't work. In the 21st century, medicine in a lot of ways still is hard and painful and difficult. Unfortunately for us, after 200 years of science, it does work.
0: So the book really, I mean, it is about that desire to be fixed. You say it pushes people to think about their sense of belief. How do do you think that the novel works on that part of us that wants to know that something can be fixed?
3: Well, our, our main character can't live with doubt. He's a scientist. He wants to understand. But then the things that he doesn't understand are what drives him crazy and drives him to some extreme actions towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And I think that we all have this desire to know, desire to understand, and we're very uncomfortable with something that appears to be reality, but we can't connect to our whatever our belief system may be, whether it's academic, whether it's scientific, if something exists outside of that but appears to be real. That is a strong disconnect in our brains. And sometimes we do crazy things to try and integrate those two things in our own minds.
0: There's something that speaks to that in the book, the passage in the Winter Sisters. This is when Dr. Waycross, that's the name of the main character, first arrives in Lawrenceville and uses ether just before going to sleep in a hog pen. I'm I'm wondering if you could read that little bit. Sure.
3: Ether's sweet smell lingers long in the nose. It tickles the brain just at the front above the eyes. The holes in the roof revealed small spots of stars, the lamp of the heavens shining down upon me. The straw was fresh, a breeze curled through the worm-ridden walls. Outside, hogs in good company murmured among themselves, and I fancied I could hear their jokes. The voice of an owl echoed, and the hogs and I found this a first-rate delight. I cuddled farther into the straw. Why, a man is just a hog with shoes on. I knocked off my boots. They fell down from the hayloft and rang out like fireworks upon the floor below. The stars exploded in reds and greens and yellows. Then, wonder of wonders, the window and the roof fell away, and the whole sky spread out like a pasture before my eyes. In the center was the moon, the great hog-nosed moon. The hogs made worshipful oinks, and I joined in their chorus. So he's... He's an addict. He's tripping, yeah.
0: <laughs> He's going out there.
3: Definitely. No.
0: But was that a real problem, especially for practitioners at that time, addiction? Oh,
3: yeah. Well, the, our current opioid crisis is not the first opioid crisis, going back to whether it's the Chinese opium trade and Chinese opium crisis or addicts to ingredients that would have been in common medicines at the time.
0: Hmm. Well, the proceeds of this novel are going to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, which is a generous but
3: unusual move. What what motivated that? I think it dovetails so nicely with the themes of the book, which on the first level are about about medicine in Georgia, but then specifically I'm working with the Child Life Department, which is trying to help patients and their families find some kind of peace or distraction, normalization in the middle of these very trying times for kids and their families. Mm. So I've been working with them to update some of their video game systems. I know some people might think video game systems, you know, who needs needs a Nintendo when you're in the hospital? That's one of the times when you need a Nintendo, to feel like for 10 minutes you can be a regular kid. Uh, There was another amount that went towards a program where they... Are providing video games and VR systems that adapt better to people with different medical conditions. So not everyone can hold the same kind of controller or watch the TV in the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's going to have VR goggles and specially designed controllers to be a more inclusive experience.
0: So that's a kind of medicine in its own way. That Absolutely,
3: experience. yeah, and addressing not just the biological cause of the problem, but helping to heal the whole person, keep them feeling better in themselves, and then seeing how that can feed back into the body and address those biological and pathological symptoms as well.
0: Tim Westover, thank you so much. Thank you. Tim Westover's book is called The Winter Sisters. You can find links to more on his book and on the Child Life Department, which the proceeds of this book go to fund, at gpbnews.org. We will leave you with one of the songs featured in the novel. This is I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground, recorded by Bascom Lamar Lunsford for OK Records right here in Atlanta.
2: Oh Tempe wants the nine-dollar show Yes, Tampy wants a nine-dollar show When I come over the hill with a forty-dollar bill, did, Baby, where you been so long? Love has a mind, love is home
0: You're listening to Glenn Jones' number one R&B hit, Here I Go Again, from 1991. Glenn got his start at a young age, signing to gospel label Savoy Records at just 17 years old. Now he's based in Atlanta and releasing new music under his independent label, Talent Room Entertainment. We invited Glenn Jones into the studio to add his picks to the Georgia playlist, our collection of songs with deep roots in the Peach State.
2: Hi, I'm Glenn Jones, and I am a recording artist, a record producer, songwriter, and actor. The first song I want to add to the Georgia playlist is Georgia On My Mind by Ray Charles. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through. I picked that song because uh, I've always been a fan of Ray Charles, and to see, you know, his versatility, just the soulfulness that he brought to a country song. I said Georgia, Georgia. The part that sticks out to me mostly is the choir that he's using. No peace I find. it's not often that you hear uh, someone using the choir to sing a country song like that for him to do that to me was very clever and uh, it just it it gave the song something special Uh, first week the song came out it was number one and uh, it, it lasted for 16 weeks so that was very impressive to me because to be able to cross those lines you know to have that mass appeal was very amazing. It's moonlight through the pine. And it makes me think of my aunt, Aunt Margaret. She was from Greensville, Florida. And she used to tell me that she knew Ray Charles when he was a boy, that she used to babysit him. And it often made me think about my aunt. The second song I'd like to add to the Georgia playlist is Midnight Train to Georgia. It's not very much I can say other than Gladys Knight is amazing. She's always been amazing, so soulful and just so, you know, uh, steady as, as a vocalist. He said he's going back. I enjoy seeing her perform that song with the pips. And the fact is, I really never realized that she wrote the song. She's a songwriter on it, and that's an amazing song. Uh, that song is timeless. My favorite part in that song is the pips when they do the woo-hoo, you know, the train sound. And it's uh, it's it's a very... Um, familiar story because I started out in the business when I was very young and you know taken off to go to the big city to try to be successful and make it and you know some of us make it and some of us don't and the fact that she said in the song the lyric said I'd rather live in his world to live without him in mine you know that's a heavy lyric to me so very special song
0: That was R&B musician Glenn Jones. We're listening to one of his new singles, You and Me. You can catch him this Thursday, December 19th at City Winery in Atlanta. You can also find more about his charitable foundation at lovejonesfoundation.org. Coming up, the Christmas story of a World War I ceasefire that inspired a folk music classic. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick around for more on Second Thought from GBB. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Here's a Christmas story that may be especially relevant for our times. It's about a truce. Christmas in the Trenches is a song about a short ceasefire on a French battlefield in Flanders during World War I. Atlanta-based singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist John McCutcheon composed and released it in 1984. It has since joined the holiday music canon, and he joined us in the studio to play the song and tell us about its origins. John, welcome.
4: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: This is such a powerful story. Can you give us sort of the the overarching arc of it before we hear much of your song?
4: This was the first Christmas Eve of World War I, and everybody thought they would be home. Little did they know that they were going to be ensconced in trench warfare, making almost literally no progress for the next five years. Mm. Um, and there was a, a sort of a confusion about what to do about christmas eve uh many of the germans uh that the um that the english were fighting had actually been working in england until the war broke out and then they came back and they joined the kaiser's army and so all of a sudden you were across no man's land from people who
0: you might have had might, you, you might have rubbed shoulders with
4: well the um and it's not even a legend it's a historical fact that um across no man's land um a, a, a German soldier started singing Christmas carols and pretty soon all the other Germans joined in uh the English of course recognized that what these were and when the Germans stopped their carol they answered with one of their own. In the song, I just sort of choose God rest you merry gentlemen. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes back and forth like this until finally the Germans sing Stille Nacht," which is Silent Night. And it was originally written in German, Mm -hmm. of course. The English recognize this and start singing along. And here were these two groups of enemies singing a common song in two different languages. The, the poignancy of that could not have been lost.
0: In, in your song you say, In two tongues one song filled up that sky.
4: The Germans ventured out first, and they came out with a Christmas tree lit up with candles, as was the tradition in those days, and a truce flight. And that prompted the English to come out at first. You know, is this a trick? What is this? But I like to think that Christmas prevailed... I think the common thought is that there was a small group of soldiers who did this, you know, a couple of dozen. But in fact, the trenches went on for over 400 miles. And Stanley Weintraub, who wrote a, a, the definitive uh, historical book on this called Silent Night, uh, claims that there were between three and 400,000 men who took part in this Ironically, one of the units, one of the German units that refused to, to participate was, was led by Lieutenant Adolf Hitler. Oh, my goodness. And the following day, uh, and they had, you know, they traded, as the song says, they traded cigarettes and pictures and chocolates, and they had a soccer game. Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's actually a famous photo of that. Oh, yes. Uh-huh.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, when I first heard this song, The genesis of me writing this song was, it was 1984, it was May, May 4th, 1984, Um, and I was two weeks away from going into the studio, my record company had, Rounder Records, had asked me to do a Hammer Dulcimer Christmas album. The Mm -hmm. Hammer Dulcimer was very popular. I'd had a couple of very successful Hammer Dulcimer albums. They said, great, why don't you do a Christmas album? And I would suspect that they expected Hark the Herald Angels Sing on Hammer Dulcimer. And I was really not interested in doing anything at all like that. So I'd gotten together some interesting musicians and some really unusual stuff, but I felt like there was something missing. On the 4th of May that year, I was playing in Birmingham at UAB in the concert auditorium there, and I was in a backstage dressing room waiting for the show to begin. And the door almost explodes open, and in literally swept this old African-American woman pushing a broom. I recognized by her accoutrements and her uniform that she was a janitor. And we were both surprised to be facing one another, because she thought it would be empty. I thought I would be left alone. But we started visiting and telling jokes and eventually telling stories. And um, finally, when it was time for one more, she told me this story. And she, pre- you know, she pre- prefaced it by saying, this ain't no joke. Mm-hmm. It hadn't got a punchline. Mm-hmm. And she told me this story. And it was the combination of f- not expecting something that wasn't funny. And it was really touching and powerful. And this was not someone that I thought would have anything to say about World War I and the mm-hmm. story there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, how did that even come up?
4: I have no idea. Mm. She just said, I said, okay, time for one more. Tell me your best one. And this, I think a lot of people tuck away their their most precious thing until someone maybe makes it okay for them or asks them it's amazing what people will do if you simply ask and she told me this and it was just astonishing and then i had to go out Uh, and i played what was probably the most distracted first set i've ever played (laughs) came back and during the intermission wrote the song during the intermission during the intermission it just poured out There are, there's a saying among writers, and it doesn't matter whether you're a songwriter, a poet, an essayist, a novelist, that there are some things you write and other things you simply write down. Mm. Um, It takes work, but you have to be ready for, you know, I I somehow knew, oh, this is what was missing from this album. I had actually heard this story before, many, many years before, thought it was apocryphal. I wasn't even sure it wasn't at this particular point in time, but I was quickly educated that, you know, oh, no, my my grandfather was there. Here is a Xerox of his diary. Mm. And in Denmark at a festival, I was approached by four men who German men who claimed that they had been a part of this.
0: Let's hold it right here and hear um, let's just hear the first first phrase of of Christmas in the Trenches by John McCutcheon. He's kind enough to play it here in our studio.
4: My name is Francis Tolliver I come from Liverpool Two years ago the war was waiting for me
2: after school
4: Belgium and to Flanders Germany to here Fought for king and country, I love dear. It was Christmas in the trenches where the frost so bitter hung. The frozen fields of France were still, no Christmas songs were sung. Our families back in England were toasting us that day. The brave and glorious lads so far away. Well I was lying with my messmates on the cold and rocky ground When across the lines of battle came a most peculiar sound it Says I now listen up my boys each soldier strained to hear As one young German voice sang out so clear
0: How did you come up with the idea at that time of Francis Tolliver? You know, the one you needed, obviously, a character. You needed something to hang it on.
4: You know, it was 1984, and um, I was about a dozen years into my career. I started off as a teenager writing songs. I wrote lots of really awful (laughs) (laughs) songs, which as I entered my 20s and had become a student, I was raised in Wisconsin and fell in love with Southern music and came South to learn it. And I was learning how to play instruments. I was learning these traditional songs. And then in the midst of a performance, I would sing some wonderful traditional song. And then I would sing this little silly thing I had written. And it was apparent to me that there were some secrets that traditional music held that I needed to learn to be a decent songwriter. I started to play the guitar by uh, thanks to a um, a book I had gotten out of the, the public library uh, entitled Woody Guthrie Folk Songs.
0: Mm, there's the great place to start.
4: And I had no idea who Woody Guthrie was when I was 14. I mean, why would I? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a guitar instruction book. And as I went through, I learned quite by accident about... Telling stories, and this was the thing that traditional music taught me, was how to, how to clear away all the extraneous stuff, get it right down to what this is about. What Woody Guthrie taught me was have a, have a voice, mm-hmm. have a character, tell it from the first person. You know, uh, come take a trip with me to 1913, to Calumet, Michigan, to the Copper Country. Or, or it was the early spring and the strike was on. Mm-hmm. They run us miners out of doors. And you were right there. And so it just, I made up the name Francis Tolliver. Mm-hmm. I gave him a context. I come from Liverpool. Um, I painted him into World War I. From there, it was all the narrative of, of what had happened but I needed to have an, invi- an, an invitation to the listener to come inside the story. And it contains great truths. That I didn't. That I didn't want to spell out.
0: Well, that's it. I mean, it, it made me think of. Um, do you know that it's a Yeats poem? An Irish airman foresees his death. You know, yes. he says something like, I'm, I, "Those who I fight, I do not hate. Those who I guard, I do not love." Mm-hmm. And th- that came across to me. You know, that sort of idea of like, in the morning after we had this night of reverie and the and the smoke clears, and the daylight is out. Someone's in my sights again. There's, there's a way that...
4: and some, But something has changed. Right. Um, that
0: you ask that question, who is in my sights?
4: Yes. And, and it's the anonymity of war that, that makes us demonize and try to kill someone that we don't know and that we have no individual beef with. We have been told, this is your enemy. Right. Go kill them. That's your job. And the interesting thing about this song is the many lives it has taken on.
0: Yeah, tell me about more about that. Well, you know, you've been playing this since 1984. I mean, I I'm have. sure every time you get on stage, people want to hear this song. This is your song, your Well, story. you know,
4: I actually got a request in, in Hartford, Connecticut one time saying, please don't sing that song. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. <laughs> it's pretty
2: heartbreaking.
4: Um, the most heartfelt and... Constant feedback I get is from veterans and their families. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I got a letter uh, just last week from a fellow out in California who said, "I, you know, years ago I was doing a a VFW Christmas party and I just took a chance and sang this song, and I really thought, well, if you know, they might not like this." And and he said afterwards, every single person came up to me. From General to Buck Private and their families, and uh, now I get hired every year just to sing <laughs> this song. I think you don't often in the news reports in the history books, certainly in the big movies, you don't often see the story of the average soldier mm-hmm. and and the people who are out there um, you know the, and you only see it from the perspective of. You know, the ones who call the shots, right. as the song says. Right. So I think to have um, a story told through the voice of, a sol- of a, just a common soldier. Um, and, and what's really interesting as well is, you know, in, in teaching world history these days, when, when I was growing up, all our fathers had fought in World War II.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, Vietnam is as far from our children as World War I was from us. That's a, a it's, staggering it's a, to think of. It, it is. And as, as these conflicts get more numerous and more removed from our consciousness and from our news and the lessons we learned, it's shocking to me how often a social studies teacher will come up to me and say, your song is the one thing that we teach in World War I. Because we don't have time mm-hmm. to teach everything, um, and I thought, well, if you got to teach one thing, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's not just for students or high school students or middle school students. But you've also written a children's book about the truth. So, what was the thinking behind that decision?
4: Well, it was uh, it was a something I always thought I wanted to do. Um, Little Brown had put out a. a a picture book based on my song Happy Adoption Day. And they just use the lyrics. So I thought, well, somebody's just going to use the lyrics. I won't really have to work. Yeah. And uh, the woman who is now my wife, Carmen Agraditi, um, was an acquisitions editor for Peachtree Publishers right here in, in the Atlanta area. And she said, she saw me perform this and she said, this would be a fantastic children's book, mm-hmm. but you have to write a story. I said, oh, man. She said, "You have to do something that that children will get inside of." The main thing is, I think this is a story that children ought to grow up knowing. And it gave it gave me an opportunity in the author's note and the accompanying CD to expand upon the context of all this for those kids and those families for whom the book and and or the song raised questions, because hopefully that's what happens. When you encounter something, a kid will say, well, what were they fighting about? Mm -hmm. Or what happened after that? Or any of the myriad of questions that that might come up. You know, when I started singing this song, most Americans had never heard this story. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kind of consider it mission accomplished if, if this is something that when someone is listening to this radio broadcast, they go, oh, yeah, I know that story. I just thought, okay, good.
0: That's Atlanta-based folk musician John McCutcheon. You'll find more information about his music and about his gig at Eddie's Attic on February the 1st at his website, folkmusic.com. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.
4: And on each other. The rifle, we're the same.